Just from the outset, I, I don't presume to be here to instruct any of you, but I hope to encourage you tonight. And so I'd just love to pray to that end as we begin. Lord, thank you for these guys. Thanks for the privilege it is to serve you. Um, and thank you for just the rich treasure you've given us in your word. So we look to your word tonight, to the truth that it contains, and ask that you would uh, encourage us and help us to focus on, on what needs to be seen so that we might be faithful to uh, preach the gospel, to make disciples, to serve your church, shepherd your flock in the days and years to come. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, some of you guys are pretty familiar uh, probably with Lawrence, Kansas. I know Dave went to school there. Some of you guys may be from around the area, Lansing. I know Leavenworth, we've got some people here who are not too far down the road. But um, Lawrence, Kansas, just for a little perspective, um, has about 100,000 people and probably less than 10% attend church of any kind. And I think that's why Dave asked me to speak tonight specifically about ministry in a post-Christian context. Uh, as you guys know, um, either because you have your eyes open or maybe you've just watched this over the course of your life, our culture is changing, society is changing, and so therefore the, the pond that we're fishing in as we seek to make disciples uh, is changing. And so that provides unique challenges to all of us as pastors. So we are in a secular environment. Uh, it's very progressive to the point where I actually wouldn't even use secular as the best description of, of our community. Um, if you're familiar with a guy named Aaron Wren, he has a taxonomy he's used to describe this phenomenon in culture that years ago, the United States was very positive towards Christianity. It was an essential part of our political and social fabric. And then as time went on, it became a very neutral society. Sure, it was pluralistic. If you want to be a Christian, that's great. Glad you're here. Glad that that works well for you. And now we've transitioned into this more negative um, attitude towards the gospel. And I think that that's not secular. It's actually just a different religion. It's very religious. And I would say that Lawrence has become very religious in an anti-God sense. There's a lot of paganism there. Um, so we are very much living in negative world. And all that being said, um, believe it or not, there's still a remnant there chosen by God's grace. There's people coming to faith in Christ. And there's faithful Christians who have, like Brett mentioned, an increasing hunger for the word. They want to know God. They want to see him. They won't settle for anything less than direct, clear, authoritative preaching from Scripture. And they long to be with other people that, that believe the same. And so we're seeing a lot of very exciting things happen uh, in our church and in our community. So Dave asked that I would talk about ministry in a post-Christian environment, not just because that's where I live, but because it's also where you live. And even if you're in a smaller town, a farming community, uh, which has a lot of appeal to me, by the way, uh, I would have rather gone there than to Lawrence. I'm, that's a different story, but I feel like Jonah there. I don't even drink coffee. I don't like to hang out downtown <laughs> in those places. That's not my scene. But God sent us there. But Lawrence is just a little bit further on down the road than where every, everywhere else is. Um, it's, a, it's very much a, a blue, a progressive island in a very red state. But with the internet being what it is, with national media being what it is, with Hollywood doing what it does, with the school system doing what it does, the place where you live is probably not that different than Lawrence. It's just that the cancer hasn't spread as far yet. But it's only a matter of time. We're all seeing that Romans 1 progression take place. It's happening where you live. And with media, the internet, and schools, that virus is being spread. And it's a matter of time till the community you live in becomes as openly and predominantly hostile as Lawrence, Kansas. And yet, God has you, and he has your family, and he has your church in that place to do ministry in that community. And he calls us to be ambassadors for the gospel. We're to be a holy people in a pagan land. We're living in Babylon, but we're citizens of another country. And our calling is to spread the gospel and to make disciples. So the question is, how can we do that when everything around us is literally going to hell? How do we faithfully discharge our duty as ministers of the gospel in a post-Christian, even anti-Christian environment? Well, I'm not an expert on this. And I have the same Bible that you guys have. But I just want to offer some encouragement, some reminders that I think will uh, hopefully just help remind all of us of those things that we need to keep before us as we seek to do ministry uh, and be faithful soldiers for Christ. So first and foremost, perhaps most important, and if you fall asleep after this, by the way, thank you for not having me go after dinner. Um, but the, the first thing I want to lay out tonight 
probably the most important point that we all need to remember is that ministry in a post-Christian context is at its core essentially no different than ministry anywhere else. It's no different than ministry at any time, in any culture, in any season, in any environment. Have you guys seen that, uh, that movie Hoosiers? They go to the state tournament, and the coach gets out there and he says, hey, get the tape measure. He has them measure the basketball hoop. You have all these kids from a small town. They're in, in an environment they're not used to, about to play the biggest game of their life in front of all these hostile fans. And he says, yep, it's 10 feet off the ground. Measure the free throw line. They stretch it out. What's it say, Jimmy? Well, it's 15 feet, just like the hoop back home. I think there's some wisdom that that basketball coach understood. That at the end of the day, basketball is basketball. And for us, really, I do want to talk about some things that I hope will be helpful. But at the end of the day, ministry is ministry. And there's a lot of things that change. But the things that matter don't. The Lord doesn't change. Our ministry, uh, our mission doesn't change. The gospel doesn't change. People's needs don't essentially change. So that's something we have to remind ourselves of, is that the challenges we face in this age and the resources at our disposal are really the same throughout time. Hearts are dead in sin and trespasses. That's our big obstacle. I'm going to hammer just a little bit on some of those theological foundations that you laid out for us. People today are blind. They cannot see and understand the truth of the gospel. And by nature, they're opposed to him. No one seeks after God. That's the challenge that you and I face as we seek to spread the gospel. People need to be born again. There's a miracle of grace that only the Spirit of God can accomplish, and that's what we want to see happen. The gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. It's explosive. It can change life. It can turn the world upside down. God's word, Jeremiah says, is like a fire and like a hammer. The author of Hebrews says it's like a sword that can pierce deeply. We know that God delights to use the foolishness of preaching. Those things haven't changed. God delights to display the power of his grace in weak vessels clay pots. That's what you and I are. Just a, a brief story that came to mind as I was kind of preparing for this tonight. Um, this was probably two years ago. I was in Kansas City, I think Blue Springs, and I was at a, a wedding, and there was a, an older pastor there. He's a Southern Baptist pastor, by the way. Um, and he said, hey, I want to talk to you after the wedding. I, I heard you all are seeing a lot, of, a lot of growth. I want to know, what are you all doing for church growth out there? He said, I want to talk to you after the wedding. So we did the wedding, and we were standing around talking, and he said, hey, what are y'all doing? Because we've got an older co congregation, not a lot of young people, and it just seems like we're shrinking, and we really need to get some more people coming. So what, what are y'all doing for church growth out there? And I said, well, it's like 50-minute expository sermons and church discipline. And he just kind of looked at me and blinked. And that was the end of our conversation. So I don't know if it was helpful to him or not, but it was helpful for me. Because in that moment when he asked me, okay, what is it that we are doing? Nothing special. Just the same old basic normal things that have been going on since the book of Acts. And that's the things that God likes to use. You and I are like the little kid with the lunch. We say, here, Jesus, here's my loaves and my fish. And he does great things with it. So before we get into this outline and some of the, the practical things, I just want to start off with this, that really ministry in a post-Christian context is not different than ministry anywhere else or at any other time. So the things that we need to be doing and the way that we need to do it is in large part nothing new. It's the things that we've always been called to do. Uh, there's no secret sauce. There's no secret trick to cutting-edge ministry to have some sort of fruitfulness in this age. So this point we can pack up and be done. I think dinner is, we still got about 45 minutes. So I don't know. Okay. We will go on. We will go on farther than this. Um, and I know you guys all believe this. I think that's why you're here. That's why you appreciate a ministry like uh, the Ironman Summit and the Shepherd Summit. It's because you guys believe that. And you believe in those theological foundations that Brett was laying out. But it needs to be said. Um, however, Dave does want us to go beyond those general principles and get to some specifics um, and talk about what that looks like in a changing society. So I want to consider uh, what are some necessities 
necessities for doing ministry in a post-Christian environment. Um, it's kind of humorous. I, I usually like short outlines, and I very rarely ever alliterate, but I threw the gold into the fire, and what came out <laughs> was nine um, words that start with the letter C, which I do like once or twice a year. Tonight is the night. So nine necessities for ministering a post-Christian context, and number one is communion. And I don't mean communion uh, as in observing the Lord's Supper together um, on Sunday with our church, although that is wonderful, strengthening, necessary. I'm talking about communion with Christ. You and I, if we're going to be faithful to do ministry and be fruitful in our ministry in a post-Christian environment where people are hostile to the gospel and resistant towards our message, resistant towards our church, we need communion with Christ. Prior to strategy, prior to content, prior to structure and approach, our ministry has to be the overflow of personal and real joy in Christ. Life in Christ. Psalm 1 says it's the man who delights in God's law because he delights in God. That's the man who has deep roots and bears fruit in every season. John 15, Jesus tells us that we can do nothing unless we abide in him. If we abide in him, if there's this dependent obedience towards Christ, Jesus says we'll bear much fruit. Galatians chapter 5 promises us that if we walk by the Spirit, depending on Him, relying on Him, that there is an overflow of fruit in our own personal lives. All of this requires that you and I have a daily dependence on Christ, communion with Christ. Otherwise, what we will be able to do, what we will have to offer, will be hollow. It will be shallow. I love Acts chapter 4. 13, the religious leaders saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, and they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So I don't know if this is, again, it's nothing unique to a post-Christian uh, context that we find ourselves in, but I think we have to start there. There's no power of personality. There's no amount of intellectual prowess that we can amass. There's no perfectly engineered strategy that can replace that dynamic walk with Christ. It positions us to be conduits of grace to others. And amazingly, it begins to function as this ultimate apologetic that when people come into our midst, they know that God is among us because there's something real, that we have this communion with Christ, a dynamic relationship with our maker, with our savior, that produces praise and love and service and peace and, and all of these different fruits. This communion with Christ is what will fortify us against error. It will, it's what will strengthen us to endure opposition. It is what will help guard us against temptation. And it will help to fortify us against discouragement as well. It strengthens us. It fills us with a spiritual power that is not our own, a power that we will need if we're going to be faithful and fruitful to do ministry in an environment where everything is stacked against us. And the reality is this can be hard for us. As you guys know, that sermon for Sunday isn't going to write itself. And the emails have to be answered. And that meeting has to be scheduled. And the kids have to get to soccer practice in 45 minutes. And the truck needs an oil change. And I say this to my shame, but all of us know what's often the first thing to go. Listen, we desperately need fellowship with Christ. We need to feast on his word. We need to recalibrate and refuel because without this, none of the rest of the points tonight are doable. If there's not that daily walk with Christ, it will be hollow at best, impossible at worst. But if we will depend on Christ, depend on his grace, we'll be equipped with everything that we need. Psalm 18:28 says, For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness, for by you... I can run against a troop, and by my God, I can leap over a wall. I don't have to tell you guys that ministry's hard, but it's in drawing near to God and experiencing his help, we are able to do whatever it is that he is calling us to do in that moment. And brothers, our churches need leaders like that, and our churches need preachers like that, where the power is not coming from us, but from Christ. We need to drink deeply and frequently from that river 
of grace. If you're going to be faithful to do ministry in a post-Christian context, first thing you need is communion with Christ. This is the second C word, conviction. Conviction. If we're going to be faithful, fruitful, you need deep convictions. Again, this is Brett's theological foundations. If you aren't convinced, we'll start first of all with a, a sense of your own calling. If you're not thoroughly convinced that God has called you to shepherd his flock, that he has called you to feed his sheep, if you're not convinced that he is appointing you to be an overseer in his church, then when things get difficult, you're going to find yourself wondering, is this really worth it? It may be that I should be looking for a different job. You know, one that doesn't have so much pressure. One that doesn't cost me and my family so much. Maybe one that pays better. You know, this ministry thing is really hard. What if I did something else and I could take off this jacket I wear every day that has a giant bullseye painted on the back? If you don't have a strong sense of your own personal calling, a conviction that, yes, I must answer the bell. Here, my Lord, send me. If you don't have a strong sense of conviction of your own calling, then you probably won't last. And many of you guys have already navigated that trial. You faced hard things. People leaving, accusations, suffering in your own family. You've questioned, maybe somebody else would be a better fit. Brothers, we need a strong sense of conviction that we are called by God to his ministry. That's a personal conviction. But it's also the doctrinal convictions. We need doctrinal convictions that are deeply rooted, bedrock upon which everything else in our life is built. If you aren't convinced that Christ died for the church, if you aren't convinced that Jesus promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, then you'll find yourself at some point questioning whether this whole project we're engaged in is really worth it. Is this going to work? Is the church really God's evangelism program? Is the church really God's discipleship program? Is the church really the answer for what our culture needs today? Maybe things have changed. Maybe this messy, inefficient, dysfunctional family that we call church, maybe that doesn't work in this context. Let's find another way. Friends, we have to have deep convictions that the church is God's plan A and there is no plan B. If you aren't convinced that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, if you aren't convinced that the gospel is of first importance, then you'll soon resort to preaching something other than Christ and him crucified. We need deep convictions. If you aren't convinced in the sufficiency of scripture, that we've been given everything we need for life and godliness, then at some point, as you do ministry in a post-Christian environment where everything's changing, you're going to become tempted to trust in other horses and chariots and not the sufficient word of God. You'll turn to pop psychology. You'll turn to human philosophy. You'll turn to man-centered strategies and methodologies because you'll think the Bible's great, but we need the Bible and something else. Friends, if you aren't absolutely convinced of God's design for gender and sexuality, you will find yourself abandoning God's authoritative word by a thousand small steps. It'll be death by a million paper cuts. As these worldly and very aggressive ideologies force their way into the cracks and crevices in your thinking. Men, if we're going to be faithful to do ministry in a post-Christian context, we have to have deep convictions. Our postmodern culture is rapidly becoming more and more intolerant, and aggressively so. So we have to know what we believe. We have to know what hills we're going to die on and stick to our guns, firmly convinced of our calling and firmly convinced of the non-negotiable truths of Scripture. And to say these truths are going to shape and inform our ministry. They're not just things that sit on a doctrinal statement that's tucked away in the file cabinet in the closet. They're not just things that are nice for filling out that one page on your website. These are things that we live and breathe and preach and sing every day. We need convictions. Third, third necessity is that we need courage. We need courage. In 2020, I think we all saw how contagious fear is. Fear on the one hand of a virus and death, and fear on the other hand of tyranny and losing our rights in an oppressive government. I saw fear on both sides of, of that issue, and I'm sure you did too. And in the middle of that was a lot of fear of man. 
well, I can't say this because then these people who disagree with me will think this and respond a certain way. We don't want to lose so-and-so from our church, but we also don't want to lose the other family in our church. And a lot of pastors were caught between a rock and a hard place because you couldn't make everybody happy. Fear of the virus, fear of the government, fear of man, fear dominated so much of the last few years in our nation. And brothers, the church needs courageous leadership. Not a courage that's rooted in self-confidence or self-reliance. It's a courage that comes from fearing God and believing his promises. That's where the courage comes from. You don't have to be 6'4 and you know, 275 to be bold, to be courageous. Believe it or not, this kind of courage that's rooted in a fear of God and faith in his promises, that kind of courage is ironically deeply attractive to the world. We talk about attractional ministry, I think appropriately so, in kind of a negative sense. We're not trying to sell things or, or convince people by just appealing to their desires. But the beautiful thing is, as we trust in Christ and we follow him, there's this otherworldly hope that we have that produces this very rare kind of courage, a courage that's mixed with humility and grace, not the angry, warlike courage that we see out there. And people are drawn to that. How do you explain that? It's deeply attractive. There's people in the world looking for that kind of hope because our society is filled with a lot of bullies right now. Both the aggressive sort who will shout you down and cancel you and the passive aggressive sort who will very disapprovingly express how they don't feel loved by you because you will not affirm them. It's two different types of bullying. But scripture calls us to have courage. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts the Lord is safe. If you trust the Lord, you are safe. There's nothing to fear. If you fear man, it will cripple you, it will restrict you, it will trip you up like that snare that is grabbed hold of that animal's leg. Luke 12, 4 Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. Fear will keep us from faithful ministry as we plow ahead into this post-Christian culture. We're called to have courage. This courage will be tested on the doctrinal battlefield. We need to be courageous in upholding the truths that are under attack. You know, it's, it's one thing for us to believe things. It's another thing to say it out loud. That's what courageous leadership will do. To say things out loud like men can't be women and women can't be pastors and that hell is eternal conscious punishment under the wrath of God and that it glorifies him. I'm sure all of you guys believe that. But saying it out loud in season and out of season, that's where our courage is tested. This courage will be tested inside the walls of your church. It's one thing to believe in church discipline. It's another thing to confront that deacon about how he treats his wife. That's a lot harder. His courage will be tested out there in the world. It's one thing to have your eschatology all sorted out on paper. I'm sure a lot of us have poured, poured a lot of time and study, had vigorous discussions trying to figure out the return of Christ, the coming of the kingdom, how a rapture fits into all of that the relationship of Israel and the church, and we can go all through that and, and assess the hermeneutics. But it's another thing for us to go out into the world confident that Jesus is the king and that suffering for him is worth it. That's an eschatology that works. This courage is going to be necessary if we're going to persevere in ministry in a post-Christian context. Friends, there's a lot of pastors out there today that are intimidated, nervous, and fearful. That kind of leadership won't result in a healthy, strong, vibrant church that is the launch pad for the preaching of the gospel and the making of disciples and the sending of missionaries and the planting of churches. We need courageous leaders. I think sometimes it's like we forget the whole Exodus story. We just need to go back to the second grade Sunday school class and say, tell me again about how the God of the Hebrews triumphed over all the so-called gods of the Egyptians and how Pharaoh said, who is this God that I should fear him? And Yahweh said, let me show you. Tell me about the parting of the Red Sea. Tell me about Jericho and those walls. Tell me about the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the third day. It's like we've forgotten about that sometimes. 
like we've forgotten the last few chapters of Revelation and everything that is to come. Brothers, we need to be models of courage for our church and lead with courage no matter what the opposition may be. Proverbs 24.10 tells us, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. We need strength. And I think, again, this courage is really going to be expressed in joy. I think there's, there's some Christians out there who recognize the need for courage. They see the lack of it. And there's sort of a, a, a false kind of man-centered kind of courage that's just angry, that rages against the enemy. It's not the joyful confidence of one who believes in the good news. We should be marked by joy. Joy because the good news is that God is fulfilling his saving promises through Jesus Christ. He's rescuing sinners like you and me. He's coming back to establish his kingdom. He's going to make all things right. That gives us joy. Courage because we're not just being rescued out of, this, out of this world. The world itself is going to be renewed and restored and we will reign with Christ. Just to clarify, you don't have to be post-millennial to have a lot of joy and confidence in facing a really oppressive society. This is kind of funny. I, I don't know if I told you this, but last year, the Ironman Summit, I forget what the question was on the discussion panel, but you're trying to get me and Brett to argue with each other somehow. And I think I, think I quoted something from Psalm 2, and I had a younger guy come up and say, so are, are, you, a, are you one of those theonomists? Are you like a post-mill guy? It's like, no, I'm, I'm pre-millennial in my theology. He goes, oh, okay. I said, why do you think that? I said, well, you know, you were talking about, you know, Jesus being king, and you quoted Psalm 2, and it's like, well, since when did they have, like, <laughs> claims on Psalm 2? We all believe that passage of Scripture, and, and yes, we weep over Jerusalem like Jesus when they don't repent, but also sometimes when God in, in heaven laughs at all of the schemes of the rulers on earth, sometimes it's okay for us to laugh with him. We should have that joy and confidence, that kind of courage, because we know Jesus wins, regardless of your millennial view and, and all of that. We need this kind of courage. It's because of the triumph of Christ and the resurrection that Paul would write, 1 Corinthians 15, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We have to believe that. And if we believe that, it should produce a courageous joy that should saturate, permeate our counseling and our preaching and our evangelism. The fourth necessity is clarity. If we're going to be faithful ministers in a post-Christian context, we need to have a laser-sharp understanding of what our mission is as the church. <laughs> Even our understanding of what the church is in general. Since I'm speaking to all the pastors in the room, I'll just throw this out. I really believe that one of the most understudied, preached, and understood doctrines in the modern church in America is ecclesiology. What is the church? What's the church supposed to be? How does it function? What does it do? And you guys know that because every time we talk to somebody about membership and baptism, we go, wow, people have no clue. And that's on us to teach them and show them. What is the mission of the church? This needs definition. I think too many of us have a sloppy understanding of what the kingdom of God is, a sloppy understanding of what the mission of the church is and how all these things relate together. And the result of all of this is that our churches can often be very busy, but not always busy with the right things. A simple question that served our church well, I know you wanted us to be practical, I'm just kind of talking principles, but a simple question that served our church plant very well in the early years, and we still ask it regularly, um, is always asking every time we're evaluating you know, an opportunity or how we're planning our, our ministry or something like that, we always ask, um, is this something we must do? There's a lot of good things we can do. There's a few necessary things we must do. I probably heard that somewhere. I don't, I don't know where I got it. It's not original to me. But that's very a clarifying question to ask. Are we doing the things we must do? Or are there are a lot of good things that we can do that are sort of getting in the way. What are the things that if we do not do them, we are failing to obey Christ? Answer that question. Because there's a lot of things that could probably be stripped away from the modern church. But there's a few essential things that cannot and must not be neglected. I think the social justice movement over the last few years has really exposed 
various understandings of what the mission of the church is. Some of you guys have had to deal with that. You may even have, if you say, I, I don't have any left-wing social justice warriors in my church, maybe you have uh, the right-wing version in your church, which is a very politically active group that seeks influence in the political sector, that that's how we're going to bring about true justice in our society. I think there's just, there's all of this, all of these voices calling for really recruiting the people in our church to these competing missions and visions. Um, the question we have to ask ourselves is do we as pastors have a crystal clear understanding of what the church is and what the mission of the church is? And then do the other men in our church share that understanding? Are they pulling on the same end of the rope that we are? Do they share our biblical convictions as to ecclesiology, what the church is, missiology, what the church is to do? And are they actively participating in that? Probably one of the most simple and helpful things we've done as a church, very similar to your Tuesday mornings, Brett, is to get a group of guys together and read through systematic theology. But it's not just systematic theology. We've also read through books on hermeneutics. We read through a book, one that I would recommend to you, since we're recommending Packer's book, which is a great one. I'll throw another one out. It's a little book called What is the Mission of the Church? It's Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert. And they ask that question, is the, is the mission of the church narrow? Is it preaching the gospel and making disciples? Or is the mission of the church broad? It's, is it this gospel of the kingdom that brings with it all of these other things? And they just do a great job of laying all that out biblically. There will be people in your church who have competing visions of what the church is to be and do. You need a group of men that are highly committed they don't have to be on staff. They don't even have to be deacons. You want the influential men who lead their homes well, who are strong leaders in your church. You want them to be on the same page as you so that there's a consensus. We have to pass on the things that we've come to learn to other faithful men who can teach them to others as well. We've gone over other books as well. Um, Christless Christianity was another one. But thinking about what place does the gospel have? What place does Christ have in every aspect of our church's ministry. Again, if you have competing visions for what the church is to do and to be, that will not produce an effective ministry. People will have different ideas. They'll come from other church backgrounds. Uh, they'll have different assumptions. So we have to give clear definition so that people can consciously buy in, so that there is clarity as to our mission as a church, so we can all pull together on the same end of the rope. The fifth necessity is comprehension. Comprehension. I don't think that we have to be experts in every false teaching, that we have to understand the ins and outs of every false religion. I don't think you need to be fully familiar with every aspect of all the sinful perversions that are out there in order to be effective in your ministry. But we do need to have some sort of comprehension as to what's going on around us in the world. What's happening? In our world. If we are naive, if we are ignorant, we won't be able to skillfully apply the truth that is needed in that moment. In Acts chapter 17, Paul walks around Athens. He's preaching in the marketplace, but he's also taking notes. He sees the different idols that are placed around the city. And he has a comprehension and understanding. He recognizes, I see what their worldview is, I know what they're thinking. I know how their mind works. I know the questions they're, in, they're asking. And so the next day when he goes up to Marcel, he gets that opportunity. He knows exactly how he wants to start the, con the conversation. He starts with God. Like Brett said, you guys need to know who the true God is. The one who actually is the source, who made everything, in whom we live and move and have our being. He knows right where to go to start the conversation that will lead him to talking to them about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He sizes up their worldview. He's aware of that. I think we see this pastoral awareness in almost all of the epistles. Paul knows that the Galatians were dealing with legalists, so he knows what kind of letter they need to get. He knows that the people at Colossae were dealing with these Jewish teachers and these proto-Gnostics, and it was all starting to mix together. He knows what they need to hear. I think there's a pastoral awareness that we need to have. Again, not that we have to be experts in culture and be always exegeting the culture more than exegeting scripture. I'm not saying that. Some people have gone way overboard with that. You don't have to watch all the movies and you know, quote the latest rap lyrics from two weeks ago. Like You don't. Don't try. But we do need to be aware. Be aware of what's going on out there. 
Do you know the challenges that your church is facing? I think this is something that will, will shape uh, our evangelism as we seek to have gospel conversations with those outside the church. We need to know where they're coming from, their worldview, their mindset, the different lies that they bought into, uh, the different forces that have been shaping them as they've grown up here in our, our nation. This is also something that shapes our discipleship. When people come into our church and they're new believers, they're going to have to be deprogrammed first before we can program them by teaching them everything Jesus has commanded. We have to be able to undo some of the confusion, walk back some of the, the assumptions and, and, and the, even the convictions that they may have. So if we're blind and oblivious to what the world is preaching, what Hollywood is exporting, what the schools are teaching, what all these influences are, we won't be able to skillfully apply the scripture. So we have to ask ourselves, do we know what psychology today is preaching? Do you know how Black Lives Matter defines racism? Do you know how critical race theory defines justice? Are you aware of the deconversion phenomenon that's happening in the church and all the issues associated with that? Again, we don't have to know everything about everything, but we need to be aware. We at least need a basic awareness if we're going to be faithful ministers in a post-Christian context. It's a matter of preserving truth in the church. You have to protect against those godless ideologies. It's a matter of discipling new believers. It's a matter of evangelistic necessity. So the practical question is, okay, well, how do I do that? How do I do that? Do I just need to binge on social media and like watch network news all day, every day? Is that? No, no, that's not how we develop this awareness. If you feel like, man, I'm missing some of that awareness. How do, I, how do I do that? I think the best thing you can do is just talk to people. Talk to people in your church and talk to people outside your church in your community. And as pastors, we're all guilty of having a lot to say, but we don't often do a good job of asking questions and listening. Like, listen to what people are saying. Ask them questions. Really? What, why do you think that? Draw them out. You will start to put together a profile of, wow, this is what is really shaping people's thoughts. These are the things they've bought into, and I can see why that's producing this destruction in their lives. You'll begin to see that. Pay attention to patterns. You know, watch commercials. Pay attention to the ads in your life. Look at the bestseller list, the New York Times bestseller list. You'll start to see, okay, here's the things that people are really buying into. Read good books, have a few trustworthy sources in terms of media, but we want to be careful that the, the main thing is you guys all, I'm sure you've all used that illustration. We have to know the real $100 bill. You don't have to know all the counterfeits. This deserves all of our, uh, our best energy and our best attention. But there's still ways we can grow in awareness of some of those other things. I think for me, one of the things that's been helpful is talking to other pastors, pastors in my community, even the ones that I'm not theologically on the same page with. You know, finding out what things are, the challenges that they are facing, the difficulties they are dealing with. Talking to other pastors that are like-minded, like you would get in a group like this, is very, very helpful. If we're going to be faithful and fruitful doing ministry in this post-Christian environment, we have to comprehend what it is that's going on around us. Sixth, the sixth necessity is caution. Caution. And I want to make clear at the outset, this is not um, walking back what we said earlier about courage. We do need to be courageous. But part of comprehending what's going on out there means we need to be on guard against specific threats. There's wisdom in recognizing the dangers around us and navigating those dangers very carefully. Again, not because we're afraid, but because we want the ministry to continue. And we want the ministry to continue with as little hindrance as possible, uh, as little hindrance as is necessary. That means we need to be cautious in terms of our personal conduct practices. We live in a post-Me Too environment where you don't have to be guilty of sexual harassment, sexual assault. Just the accusation enough. The accusation always gets the press. Exoneration that may or may not come later usually never gets the same wide circulation that the accusation does. Some of that may not be able to be avoided, but we need to take precautions and recognize there are people out there who are enemies of the church who would love to sink you, who would love to sink your family, wreck your reputation, and discredit your ministry. So anything you can do to not put yourself in a situation where you can be accused, you should probably be cautious. The old Billy Graham rule is really good. Don't be alone with a woman. Guard your conversations, your communications. 
have group texts, not one-on-one texts. Include one of your pastors or deacons or your wife or someone else. If you're communicating regularly with another woman, you want to be careful to be on guard against that. Think about your policies for weddings. Will you do weddings outside your church membership? Why or why not? That's something guys in my church have pushed me to say, hey, we, we would rather you just do weddings in our church. Part of me says, hey, any wedding I can do, I'll happily marry two unbelievers. They're equally yoked in their unbelief. But I want to meet with them and do some premarital counseling, share the gospel, and tell them, I'll do your wedding, but I, I get to preach the gospel. If they're cool with that, then that's for me an opportunity. But there may be times where it's wise to say, well, you know, you're going to have to say no to some weddings too because you're not going to marry the two men or the two women. And that leaves you and your church open to different attacks. That could actually compromise your ability to keep doing ministry to your church. There may be some precautions you have to take in terms of um, policies for weddings. What about plans for the bathrooms? What would you do this Sunday if someone who was 6'2 with a large Adam's apple and a dress showed up at your church? And they said, excuse me, where's your restroom? Do you guys have a plan for that? Those are things to think through. We've, we've had that experience in our church. We need to be cautious about that. Think through, would we rather have the confrontation with this individual by telling them you need to use the men's bathroom? Would we rather put our women in a vulnerable situation to have a man go in the bathroom for that? matter do we want this man going in the men's bathroom with little boys so we cheated and we created a family bathroom that's a single use that's how we solved that but those are things we have to think through there's a level of caution that's not born out of fear it's not born out of being scared of what might happen to us it's rather saying how can we take wise precautions that protect the flock that allow the ministry of the gospel to continue There will be certain types of of opposition we can't avoid, but the kinds we can, let's do that. I think we see examples of this caution in Scripture. Jesus, in the Gospel of John, did not go openly up to the feast. It's not because he was afraid. It's because it wasn't his time to die yet. So he took precautions. Paul knew his rights and appealed to Caesar when he was under arrest. Not because he was afraid of dying. Paul was not afraid of suffering. You guys know his track record. It's because he wanted to extend his gospel preaching as long as God wanted him to stay alive. Peter had to go knock on the door so that he could be let into the prayer meeting after he got let out of prison by the angel. Apparently, they were taking some precautions. So I think that we ought to heed that call to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves because we're now living in a world whose general attitude towards the church is becoming increasingly hostile. So things may look a little bit different than your grandpa's church did. You know, the small Methodist community church 30, 40, 50 years ago probably looks a lot different than how some of us may need to do church in the future. Those are things we ought to take into consideration. The seventh C, and we'll wrap this up quick, is community. Community, persevering in our faith which I think is really at the heart of of doing ministry in a post-Christian environment. It's a matter of perseverance. Persevering in our faith is an individual responsibility. You and I are called to endure. But this is also a group project. If we're going to be faithful to Christ, follow him and serve him, you and I need other believers around us. That's part of the beauty of what the church is. Our world is rapidly changing, but it's the strong communal ties within the church, both I really think both locally and universally. Fellowships like this, where we are not in the same local assembly, but it's these communal ties that God uses to strengthen us. And it's really ironic. One of the the ways that persecution strengthens and purifies the church is it helps us sever our allegiance to the world. It helps us realize we don't belong there. That's not our home. And it draws us close together where we start relying on each other, needing each other more than we did before. When it was very easy to have community, if you want to use that buzzword, at work or on the soccer team or at the gym with your hunting buddies or whatever it is. (coughs) Persecution is going to push us together, forces us to partner together. And that's a good thing. We need each other if we're going to be faithful to do ministry long term. This attitude needs to be cultivated in our churches. One of the benefits I've seen in our church in Lawrence is 
that because our community is so pagan, because it's so crazy, it's like all the stereotypes you think of, um, there's this unique sense of closeness and solidarity in the church. Um, at one point, it was like maybe a year and a half ago, there's an older lady who came to me on a Sunday, big smile on her face, asked her how she was doing. She said, this is my favorite day of the week. She said, all week it feels like I'm suffocating, but I come here on Sunday and I take these giant breaths of fresh air and it's enough to keep me going. And we want to disciple her to have that communion with Christ throughout the week as well. That doesn't have to be just on Sunday. But there's a unique grace that's experienced when Christians are together. And we're like, wow, I'm not the only crazy one. All these other people are crazy like me. You are all weird like me. You will die for the same things I will die for. You're getting the same criticisms that I'm getting. You're making the same sacrifices that I'm making. And there's a togetherness that comes from that that is absolutely a blood-bought gift that comes with the gospel of this togetherness we have in the church. The gathering of the saints is a means of grace. And so as pastors, we need to work hard to affirm and encourage that sense of family and partnership in the church. I also think that you and I need this as pastors. Um, again, moving to Lawrence, I left a church where I was one of four local pastors. We had a church planting pastor 30 minutes down the road, two missionaries that were uh, very closely connected with our church. So there was a lot of brotherhood in terms of pastoral ministry. And then moving to Lawrence was different. It put me in a different situation. While I still had those relationships, I wasn't shoulder to shoulder with those men every day anymore. And one of the unexpected blessings I experienced in Lawrence was fellowship I had with other local pastors. <coughs> Again, uh, local pastors that were not all on the same page theologically as where many of us would be. We were very different. But again, they were weird like me. They believed the Bible was true, that Jesus rose from the dead, that there's a real heaven and a real hell, and the only way to be saved is to believe in Christ. After that, everything was up for grabs. But those things, we were actually all on the same page. And I did not expect how much God would use some of those relationships to encourage me and to strengthen my faith. So I would encourage you to look for that unlikely fellowship. Even more helpful is the fellowship I've had with other brothers that are very like-minded, many of the men who are sitting in this room. I would encourage you to look for those kinds of relationships as our world becomes more and more anti-Christian, we as the church, even the broader church, I think are going to experience more and more the blessing that it is to recognize that we all belong to the body of Christ. I had nine, but we're going to finish with number eight. The eighth and final necessity for tonight is compassion. We need compassion if we're going to be faithful to do ministry in a post-Christian world. We have to see them not as the enemy, but as the mission field. And if we don't see it that way, our churches are not going to see it that way. And even if you see it that way, there's people in your church that have a hard time. And they get punched in the mouth. And they get accused, slandered, ridiculed. When they feel fearful about what's going to happen in the future, they, they stay up at night worrying about the world that their kids are going to grow up in. We have to cultivate this attitude of compassion to see the world not as the enemy, but as the mission field. It's tempting when we're hated by the world to return the favor. But remember the words of our master, Luke 6. Jesus says, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. We all know that the harvest, the field, is ready. But some of us want to go burn the field down, not go into the field and get to work. You know? Pour some diesel along the windward side and just kind of, you know, watch it go. We need this heart of love and compassion, even for those who treat us like enemies. Uh, the, the heart of the Apostle Paul in Romans 9, I, I'm astounded every time I read it. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. That's convicting. I don't know if I can say that I would go to hell if it meant that all the sinners in Douglas County could be saved. I'm not as godly as that. But I think that's an ideal that we're to aim towards, to grow towards. Our goal is not to try to own the libs, okay? Our goal is to rescue souls. So while severe words and severe treatment of deceivers is absolutely warranted, 
Sometimes as the shepherd, you have to shoot the wolves, yes. But not everyone is a deceiver. Some people are the deceived. They're victims of Satan's lies, victims of a godless world. And we need to be able to discern between those two types of people and maintain a heart of compassion for those who are lost, those who are blinded by Satan, those who are enslaved to their sin, those who are reaping the destruction that has been sown by the lies of the world that they have believed. I think we're going to have a lot of opportunities in the future to minister to disillusioned souls. The LGBTQ machine is going to chew people up and spit them out on the side of the road. And you and I are going to come alongside, and there's going to be someone laying there bleeding in the ditch who believed the lies, took the hormones, had the surgery. And we are going to have a chance to minister to them. But we'll miss it if we see them as the enemy. So we need to lead our churches towards this kind of compassion. Again, our people are being recruited by different groups, and different groups on both the left and the right, they've discovered a very powerful motivator, and it's outrage. As much outrage as they can stir up in you means the more likely you are to jump on board with their project. You have to be on guard against that. Our world is becoming increasingly divided, increasingly hostile, to where we see anybody who's not totally with us as being the enemy. But discipleship means we need to train our people to love our enemies, to have compassion on those who need the gospel, not to see them as a threat, but to see them as the mission field. The last and final C was contentment. We'll just close with that. Content with God's timing, content with whatever fruit he gives. Again, I don't think I've probably told you guys anything tonight you didn't already know, things you didn't already believe, but just let me offer this word of encouragement. Um, If there's anything I could say from our experience in Lawrence is that these are things that we believed before we started. And now, um, starting 2014, 2015, we're 2023 now, so what's that, eight years, nine years? We've seen this happen. We've seen that this is what God uses. These are the simple, normal, faithful things that God blesses. The rim is 10 feet off the ground. It's the same thing we've been doing. So let's not jump ship and try something different and think that whatever these challenges are, it calls for something other than what Christ has already provided for us. Lord, thanks for these men. Thanks for their willingness to serve you, to give their lives to you. Pray that you would give us the courage that we need, strengthen our convictions, draw us near to you each day, that we might be faithful to lead your church, shepherd your people, and share good news with the world. No matter what the opposition is, Lord, we believe your promise that you will build your church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen.